the Ferengis represent the ideal of capitalism? Quark says that much to Captain Sisko in a monologue where he drops the mask and almost breaks the fourth wall. The way I see it, humans used to be a lot like the Ferengis. Greedy, acquisitive, interested only in profit. We're a constant reminder of a part of your past you'd like to forget. But you're overlooking something. Humans used to be a lot worse than the Ferengis. Slavery, concentration camps, interstellar wars. We have nothing in our past that approaches that kind of barbarism. You see, we're nothing like you. We're better. Quark's summation, so this is in Deep Space Nine. Quark's summation of his species superiority is an explicit allusion to du commerce, the enlightenment notion that trade and commerce have the power to soften nations' mores by making people happier through the satisfaction, through the satisfaction of their needs, whether they be important or superficial. In fact, the theory of du commerce supposes that the manufacturing and consumption of luxuries have a direct beneficial political effect. It suggests that citizens, plied with available pleasures and luxuries, become increasingly less enthused by martial virtues. Du commerce wants to realize universal peace through free and open trade, the massive instrument of modern markets, rather than just personal cultivation and education. That ideal was significant in that it articulated the crucial view that economic growth, consumption, and industrial capitalism could indeed serve the human pursuit of happiness. Understanding luxury was a major component in the invention of classical political economy, and I am immensely impressed that Star Trek directly addresses that question through the Ferengis. There is indeed a largely theoretical world in which the consumption of luxury is not, in fact, a detriment to society and contributes to the common good. The political consequences are twofold. A society whose main passion is luxury and consumption is much less likely to be interested in war, and consequently, it is more likely to be interested in the best ways to procure such luxuries, that is, financial wealth. Incidentally, this was the crux of the debate between Hamilton and Jefferson during the American Revolution. Would the United States become a commercial republic, turning towards trade, manufacturing, and the pleasures of urban life, or an agrarian one, modeled on the Roman Republic, with its great patricians and its military leaders, buttressed by legions of rugged soldier farmers and colonists? The ideas of luxury and du commerce were devised as a way to try to understand the new world of economic power and economic competition between nations. It was stunning to most at the time that incredible fortunes could be amassed so quickly by so few people, just by trading and procuring exotic goods for mass consumption, such as cane sugar, coffee, tea, and tobacco. These were goods that urban dwellers relished and whose consumption had spurred the creation of cafes and restaurants in the great cities of old Europe. It was modern consumption and modern life. All this new stuff ran counter to what most people knew about the world, and most notably the myth that agriculture was the main source of wealth and power. Adam Smith was very much grappling with the same type of future shock that we are experiencing today. These utopian views Defended by the living philosophers of the Enlightenment had a much darker side. The pleasures of life, starting with sugar and tobacco, 
were in fact produced by slaves in faraway colonies. The triangular trade, forced labor, war, and genocide had brought about relative peace and prosperity in Europe and its American settlements. The portrayal of the Ferengis as stalwarts of do-commerce conveniently elides that terrible reality. In that sense, this is the exact point where the fictional side of the Ferengis breaks through. While in many ways they represent our point of view, they also stand in for the dreamy ideal of a pure and enlightened capitalism, free of its historical baggage and its actual culpability. That too is us, 21st century humans. So I'm going to read a little more. The main story of Deep Space Nine is the war between the Federation and a ruthless and calculating enemy, the Dominion. Like the Borg, the Dominion is an imperialist power. It seeks, it seeks to bring people and planets under its rule by any means necessary. The war unfolds over several seasons with its lots of tragedies and revelations. Under strain, Starfleet officers must make difficult choices and ethically dubious compromises. The climactic episode of the series is a study in the impossible choices of war. Along with chain of command, I don't know if you're yeah, chain of command, it is perhaps the greatest Star Trek episode ever produced. Captain Sisko must abandon all the ideals, large and small, he is sworn to uphold as a proud officer, so as to lure the shift, the shifty Romulans into joining the Federation's side against the Dominion. You have to be immersed in the show and attuned to Trek lore to fully appreciate the enormity of pale moonlight. Sisko, as a prominent Romulan politician, killed and is murdered disguised as a Dominion assassination plot. Worse still, it is Garrick, the Cardassian tailor, traitor, and spook who orchestrates the whole affair. Sisko outsources his immorality to his less scrupulous and shady ally. That awful trade-off of the death of an innocent man against the eventual victory of the Federation is absolutely devastating. Avery Brooks as Cisco and Andrew Robinson as Garrick and of Dirty Harry fame give their finest performances in the service of no less a masterful script by Peter Allen Fields and Michael Taylor. In the Pale Moonlight is Deep Space Nine at its most dramatic and exciting. In one of the episode's many twists, Cisco must bribe Quark to buy his silence. He does it under duress, yet another indignity in the name of a much higher purpose. purpose. Quark can barely contain his glee, not so much for the meager profit, but because he finally succeeding in forcing a Starfleet officer, and the captain no less, to show a bit of his inner Ferengi. That little victory in the grand clash of civilizations between the Federation and the Ferengis proves to be Pyrrhic. That is what makes it so poignant. Bribe notwithstanding, the Ferengis eventually lose out. Throughout Deep Space Nine, the scheming and conniving profit-driven trolls are a constant challenge to the Federation's absolute mandate of cultural tolerance. Early on in the series, it is revealed that Quark is actively discouraging his nephew, Nog, from attending the station's human-run school. Quark strongly believes that school is not only a waste of time, but also in contravention to Ferengi's customs. The only school a young Ferengi boy should attend is the school of hard knocks. Yet Nog aspires to more. Sisko's son, Jake, eventually finds a solution to Nog's dilemma, but it hardly settles the larger issue. 
Nog is just one single Ferengi child, and both the Federation's policy of absolute non-interference and the Ferengi's bigoted traditions remain in full force. The penultimate episode of Deep Space Nine brings the Great War to a close. The defeated Dominion's representatives sign a peace treaty while the various characters, from Worf to Chief O'Brien and Odo, part ways. As everyone is busy celebrating and saying their goodbyes, Gwen Negezek, leader of the Ferengi Alliance, visits the station to announce his successor. Quark is convinced that he is the nominee. However, he grows concerned when he learns of the new laws enacted by the departing potentate. Ferengi women are now allowed to wear clothes and to join the workforce to participate in business ventures. Labor reforms and pension laws have been enacted. And an elected Congress of Economic Advisors is empowered to legislate. Even more troubling to Quark, the Ferengi state raises taxes to fund various programs in a social safety net. Things are definitely not what they used to be. Against all odds, the Ferengis have mellowed. They have become enlightened social democrats. And I'll keep it on that. <laughs> so um, the, uh, we're, I'm very lucky because my friend Chris Black is here. Uh, and uh, he used to work on Star Trek. Yeah. And uh, so if you want to join us and uh, give us a, a few... Uh, um, and and I must say that so so we're we're hello okay. yeah so we're, we're neighbors and this mostly this book mostly came out of uh, um, discussions we had together around beers. Well, why don't you why, why don't you start with that? Um, I, I did work on Star Trek. I worked on Star Trek Enterprise, which was the last of the Star Trek series before they're rebooting it. Now they have a new one in the works. Uh, and I worked on it for three seasons. Uh, and uh, Manu had moved onto my street and we ran into each other. And he was <laughs> very excited to find out that I had this yeah, connection yeah. with the Star Trek universe. It was very funny because he was like, oh, no, you're one of these. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's funny because when... You know, people find out I work on Star Trek, their first question is, is, or the first thing they say usually is, oh, I love Patrick Stewart. And I'm like, yeah, I love him too. I didn't work on that one. <laughs> um, and I was pleased that he actually knew, not only knew the show that I worked on, but liked the show and actually knew which episodes I wrote, which was a little which is, troubling yeah. since he lived two houses away from me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it all worked out okay. But so, well, but so that's how we met, and that's what a, a little bit of what my background is. But so what, uh, other than you and I just chit-chatting about Star Trek, what, why the economics of Star Trek? Um, I, I, so for fans of the show, you'll know that, that everything's been written about Star Trek. Everything. Like the physics, the philosophy. The, the philosophy of Star Trek book is called The Wrath of Kant. So, <laughs> um, everything's been written. They, they all right? seem to have names that are a little yes, funny. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's, it's part of the genre. Um, but, weirdly enough, the economics had not been done. And um, it seemed to be the most important part of the show, at least to me. Uh, and the most interesting part, because you know, there's only so much you can say about philosophy and physics. I don't know if you guys read uh, the Physics of Star Trek by Lawrence Krauss, but basically he says, uh, "No, no, no, no." It's a bunch of check marks explaining why it's no. So um, the economics is somewhat different. The economics is actually n not necessarily a full no. Um, 
It's not a full yes either. But it's not, it's, so that's why I did it, because uh, it seemed to me to be the most interesting part of the show. Well, it certainly was, I mean, as you say, everything else had been covered to some degree, or most things had. Uh, the obvious things, like the physics, like can you build a transporter? No, you can't. No, you can't. Stuff like that. Um, but I, I assume you were drawn to, to economics. It wasn't just that it was the only thing that hadn't been done. I mean, no, you, no, no. But did you have a background yeah, in I, economics? Yeah, I, I studied economic history, so that's, I'm, a, I'm an economics nerd. Um, and so I was really surprised, actually, uh, at the response, we ended up with Chris last uh, uh, October doing a panel in New York at Comic-Con with uh, Paul Krugman and Brad DeLong. And these are um, <laughs> they're serious economists. I mean, they're practicing economists and they're absolute sci-fi fans and Star Trek fans. Although Krugman was, was very... Um, he was he was very intent, intent on on letting us know that he was really a fan of Asimov, not Star Trek. But <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. But it's like, I'm, no, no, I'm I'm an Isaac Asimov fan. Well, that so. that, that was funny because he Manu asked me if I would be on his Comic Con panel, and I was like. Sure, I'm not an economist. I don't know anything about economics. And he's like, "Oh, don't worry about that. It's like you're the you can be the voice of Star Trek." So I, I, that's literally all I was. It was like I was, but far and away the 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 least smart person on that panel. It was like there was me. There was the Star Trek writer at one end and the Nobel Prize winning economist at the other end, and they would be having these conversations about economic theory and stuff like that. And they would look at me and be like, "So when you were working on the show, were you thinking?" about any of that? I was like, no. Well, I mean, I, 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 I don't believe that. Uh, that that's, okay, maybe on Enterprise, but... I'm not consciously thinking about it. It was like, But I it's mean, part of the Bible, and it's part of the structure of the show that there's no money. Um, yeah, yes. And, and, it's, and from what I understand, it's a pain in the ass, because the normal conflicts that you will have as a writer with your characters is just not there because they don't so it's a workplace I write that in the book it's it's a workplace show but without a workplace drama without drama so yeah well yeah a workplace drama without conflict it was like nowhere where no one fights over the coffee machine or whatever it yeah, was like, or, but it was like and that was one of the challenges of Enterprise was it being it, at the end of the run and so so much weight had been attached to what Star Trek meant that the 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 mythos, if you will, of Roddenberry's universe, I think had taken on a, a weight and a significance beyond what even Roddenberry had intended it to. So we, we were sort of burdened with protecting this legacy that I think exceeded what it was originally intended to be. And, and we would pitch stories to our, uh, our boss on the show and, you know, about conflict on the ship, and he would be like, well, they're Starfleet officers. They don't get into conflicts. Yeah, they all get along. And I was like, did you watch the original series? It's like, you know, yeah. <laughs> McCoy and Spock went at it tooth and nail. It was like, it went, it was crazy. And it was like, no, this is not the world they live in. This is the enlightened 24th century or 23rd century. Or oh, 22nd. Or, yeah, whichever one it was. See, he knows more about it. I, <laughs> I worked on showing this more about than I did. Um, and so the, the threat would always have to come from outside the ship. The threat would always have to come from some aliens with little, you know, we used to joke about it, it was the forehead of the week, whatever. The, the <laughs> but it seems region. also that um, the, the utopian nature of the show, um, I mean, that, that's, that's, the, that's, one of, that's one of the reasons I really wrote the book. It's like, I can't think in science fiction, I mean, the science fiction, whatever we call the science fiction canon, 
or you know, even in science fiction on TV, there's very little of that utopian strain um, and uh, optimism that is Roddenberry's legacy, and that he sort of bought into it. Probably, I mean, yeah, he, I think. I mean, I think it certainly was legitimate. I thir- it certainly was the vision he wanted to present. It was the show he wanted to make. But then I think eventually, yeah, he became he bought into his own. And you, you notice, by the way, that the movies are totally different. And he had no hand in them, and he was forbidden from influencing scripts or anything like that. Really, so in the, my time. So yeah, now in the, the story of the, the number six, um, the undiscovered country. So ninety-one. Uh, so it's Nicholas Mayer as well, uh, and there are some racist talk among Federation officer, Federation officers about um, the Klingons, and Roddenberry was really apparently pissed off at this. And Nicholas Mayer, in his memoirs, remembers uh, very tense meetings. But the thing is, Roddenberry did not have. Um, and he's saying the movies, and so the movies are very different. I think the next generation is really where he, he sort of got to do exactly what he wanted, right. w- which was much less um, gunfights and and Kirk being a manly man and Getting much his more shirt ripped. Yeah, yeah, yeah conveniently. No, no, I mean, there's, there's. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, uh, what are little girls made of? Sure, it's crazy. They're, well, a lot of them are crazy. They're, they, they're just the original series. They're just crazy. And, and then they're groovy. And uh, it's a miracle that they let them put that on on TV. I mean, yeah, it was, well, it was 1967 through 69 or whenever it was. It was it was a trippy time, right? Yeah. So I'm told. But it was network TV and children were watching this. Yeah, yeah it's true. <laughs> but it was, uh, what was the, it's, like, it's funny, you talk about how trippy they were. And some of those, my friend David Goodman, who I worked with on Enterprise, who's a really talented writer. He's worked on Family Guy and a bunch of other stuff. It's very funny. But he wrote an episode of Futurama that was the Star Trek episode. And they got all of the <laughs> surviving original cast members to like do come and do the voices. It's very funny if you haven't seen oh, it. Is it the episode where uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy is... Uh, their heads, they're all heads in a jar, and they end yeah. up going, and there's, a, there's like an energy being that gives them their bodies back and then makes them uh, perform his original fan fiction episode of Star Trek for him. Oh, um, but there's, when, there's, there's a bit in the, in, the, in the show when Fry is trying to explain to his friends from the future what Star Trek is because they don't know it. Yeah. And he's going, like, science fiction show ran in the late 60s on NBC. So how many episodes are there? 79 episodes. About 30 good ones. And it's yeah. like, and it gets a big laugh. But it's like, yeah, I got, that's, a, that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, so, and, and by the way, there is a real difference between the original series and um, Next Generation and whatever came next. I mean, whatever came next. Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. And the original series is not at all, or much less interested in economic matters. Whereas uh, Next Generation, if you remember, at the the end of the first season, uh, the last episode, the neutral zone, it's where Picard gives this, uh, I mean, Jean-Luc Picard, uh, uh, Patrick Stewart. I was going to say Jean-Luc Stewart, but um, it's where Picard gives this talk about how we're no longer interested in the accumulation of things, and it's uh, he does it in, in with his inimitable voice, uh, and it's very convincing. And this is something that um, is very explicit in Next Generation. Um, it's where the replicator hap- uh, appears. It wasn't there before. 
uh, it's, it's very explicit that this is a utopian post-scarcity economic setup that has nothing to do with uh, the way you live now. Um, and, and we have a hard time remembering this, but because you know we were young then, uh, but this was during the Reagan years. The, the next generation first run was the same year as Wall Street, the movie. Oh, really? And the uh, you know and the crash and all that. I mean, like I, I checked, uh, Wall Street like came out in December of '87, and the last episode was like. March of 88 for the first So you had these conflicting messages. You had greed is good. Yes. And at the same time, we are no longer uh, yes. concerned with the accumulation of wealth. And, and, and yeah, and, and this is the same year. This is during Bregan's, you know, I mean, the 80s were not, I don't know if you remember, but the 80s were not necessarily a lot of fun. Um, I don't know. I had a lot of fun in the 80s. But <laughs> me too. But I was in college, so it was like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, well, yeah, I mean but politically, it wasn't, you know, um, it wasn't all, it wasn't, it, it's very strange that Star Trek get made, uh, Next Generation get made, and, and get made, and was able to see these things. I, I well, let's talk, I actually, for a second, I, you bring up an interesting point, because I think it's easy for Captain Picard to say something like that. I think it's easy for him to say, as a, as a philosophy, as a, a, mm. as a mission statement of Star Trek, that, mm. oh, this is who we are, this is who we've evolved into, mm. that we don't have a society based on the accumulation of things. People are no longer concerned with the accumulation of things. And there clearly was a transition, because... If you look in the original series, they did have money. They yeah. bought things. They talked they about having tribbles. credits, and yeah. you know that they. You assume that they got a salary for working on the ship because they had money to spend and mm. in trading posts and bars and stuff like that. And there clearly was a sense that they did like to acquire things. There were people they wanted things. They bought mm. things. So there was some transition that that clearly. It, in the it's a hundred years apart. It's a hundred years apart, but that's. It seems like a hundred years is a relatively short amount of time for yes. a people to say, "Okay, that stuff's not important to us anymore." I know I don't want tribbles anymore. I just want to be a good uh, Starfleet officer. I want to be a good scientist. I want to be a good captain. I mean, do you? I want to be a Vulcan. That's I want to be a Vulcan. Whatever. I, I mean, when you were writing, do you? personally feel that that is a philosophy that people could ever embrace? Like, even in a world where, uh, as Picard says, it's based upon achievement or accomplishment, that, that people wouldn't like to have nice things, to be surrounded by nice things, to acquire uh, things. It all hinges on, you know, what you define by nice thing. Um, if you can have it replicated at any moment or at any time. The nice things in... in I mean, I guess would, would avarice be eliminated? So it's like if, you, if I had a replicator... I mean, crap would be pouring out of that thing day and night. It's <laughs> yeah. like, you know... And, and I it mean, wouldn't what, have any value. That's, what's that's, it's the phenomenon of... Uh, in economics, uh, it's called satiation. So it's the notion that the first cookie is always going to be better than the tenth cookie. And... Um, because you've been, become sated with it at some point. Yes. Uh, and so... With a replicator, the 1,000th cookie is really not going to be that interesting. Right. And so the general idea is that um, you have the, the decreasing value or decreasing utility of your enjoyment uh, the more you have things. Uh, 
And in the case of the next generation and the way you set it up is you have replicators and things that the replicators can make basically have no monetary value because anybody can have it. So there's no point, for instance, in um, trying to corner the market on any kind of good since it can be made anywhere by, by the machine. So the attitudes and um, behaviors that are conditioned by scarcity today um, acquisitiveness, competitiveness, things like that have to uh, be rerouted, so to speak, to other domains. Um, that's, that's where I find uh, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine extremely consistent with economic theory. Uh, competition and, yeah, I mean, competition and acquisitiveness and uh, the accumulation of things. It's no longer the accumulation of things, it's the accumulation of reputation and cred and um, fame. Uh, there's only one captain's chair. Right, uh, and, and well, and that's a good point though. So not, you, you presume you have a federation that has billions of inhabitants, mm -hmm. and you know, not everyone can be a Starfleet captain, not everyone can be a Starfleet officer. It's very hard. You know, the, there are presumably, there presumably is a... They're the cream of the crop of the, they're, they're the one percent. Yeah, <laughs> well, and, and from, a, from a dramatic point of view, that's the story you want to tell. I mean, yes. it's like if you're going to make a TV show, those are the people you want to follow. Those are the interesting characters who get into interesting dramatic <laughs> situations. But, but in your world, in your economic world, of your larger economic world of Star Trek, are, what about the people who build and service the replicators? I mean, do they live the same life of sort of achievement and reward that a Starfleet officer does? Well, you can be, yeah, probably. I mean, it, not as... Uh, Worthy of a TV show, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and but it, it, we do get glimpses of everyday life in the Federation in several episodes. Um, I'm there. I, one of them was this uh, episode with Captain Picard coming back to see his family uh, in France, um, and they're, you know, they're not peasants, obviously, but they're they're vintners, um, and they don't do much else but tending to their vines and making wine uh, and being very attached to their craft and their tradition. And it seems that that was a way to encapsulate the kind of life that people live when they're not Starfleet, crazy Starfleet officers going to discover new life and new civilization and they just carry on with their lives um, doing things that are very valuable to them uh, and in which they take extreme pride. Uh, and it seems that this is the kind of model. Like the people you don't usually see in Star Trek, well, they take pride in their craft and in their art and in their everyday life and in the things they do and in sharing them. Uh, I'm thinking also of Captain Sisko's restaurant, uh, uh, Captain Sisko's father's restaurant, for those who watch Deep Space Nine. Um, it's the same thing. I mean, it's it's the reward doesn't seem to be in becoming rich, because there's no real money, but it's in becoming very well known for the quality of your work or the quality of the stuff you make. Um, and the people who serve the replicators, it seems that, uh, or service the replicators, it seems that a lot of them are um, some variant of the medical, um, of the emergency medical hologram. Um, it's, it seems that a lot of it has been automated. Um, the idea of the replicator is 
in the end, a metaphor more than anything else. It's, right. it's not about the physics. It's about what it represents. Well, but that's interesting. You, you bring up the point of automation. And in Voyager, they had the, the doctor had essentially been replaced by a computer program. Yes. You know, and that... He's very good. Uh, well, and it's funny. <laughs> he is very good. He's and, a very know, good doctor. Well, and the funny thing is, is it seems like that, of all the things you could replace, of all the things you could, could potentially automate, it seems like being a physician would be something that someone would actually aspire to be and take. Yes. It, it's not a job that would be, I would put first in the list to be automated out of existence. But uh, actually, don't be so sure. Um, IBM is now running this test at um, I think they have Cedar Sinai here and uh, Sloan Kettering in New York, and they have this uh, the, the same machine that won uh, uh, Jeopardy is now. Um, Oh, the uh, deep blue computer. Yeah, no, no, I mean, but it's very serious. It's an expert system that apparently gives better diagnosis to cancer patients than doctors themselves and better course of treatment. And so they're generalizing now this trial uh, beyond these two hospitals. So very soon we will have, um, I mean, it's already a reality. We, we, have, uh, we have expert systems that can diagnose and that do it without the biases that come with being a human. Um, so we have that, and then on the other hand, we do have medical, uh, we do have uh, um, robot surgery systems that now are manipulated by humans, but with enough data, uh, will certainly be able to perform surgeries without human intervention. So even these great, you know, hallowed, um, high human capital professions are. Uh, probably on their way, not their way out, but they will have a lot more assistance from automatons. Um, and so this is not something that's complete. That's why Star Trek is so fascinating, I think, it, when you look at it from the prism of economics, because it actually, um, it actually raises the right questions. I don't know if it has all the answers, but it does raise the question of what do we, what do we become as a species, but also as a society, when um, when machines uh, are much more widespread and much more useful, uh, and what is our place in that? And by the way, uh, uh, you remember that um, there's this final thing, but um, the self-aware machines in Star Trek, so I'm thinking Commander Data, but also the Doctor, they gain citizenship. So that's interesting. Well, what well. about Nomad, though? I mean, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Uh, that was a curveball. <laughs> <laughs> I threw you one. Good. Yeah, like, no, no, no. I, mean, like, I don't have a good answer to that one. Okay, but, all right. Well, we'll, we'll, but it's, we'll uh, put yes. a pin in that. Um, well, dude, I, I think we should open it up to questions. If anybody actually hey. has a question in the back. Craig. Uh, I was just thinking about things... Um, also, I just want to mention the holodeck, which is... Well, yeah, I mean, that's... Yes. But uh, my thought is, though, like, the World War III, like, nuclear holocaust, <laughs> right, that, that the original Star Trek referenced a lot, like, it took yes. the holocaust to somehow create the future where we're all... I thought it was the Vulcans. Well, no, that was because I think what you're talking about is from the original series when they they talk a lot about the atomic wars and but they, how we but manage. they keep yeah, it yeah, then exactly. uh, like in first contact. It's like post Holocaust, right? Exactly. Like they, these mountain, mountaineers built 
the warp core out of that. I, yeah, I don't but know. that was all added after. It's like you know. Not much ever in the maybe think about Reagan years and the Reagan generation, they ever talk about the atomic wars? They don't really, right? Well, it's weird because you, and this is a, it feels like it just becomes a function of, of the, the time in which it's built. Like, if you look at the Terminator universe, yeah. Skynet has already taken over. It happened, like, yes. what, like 15 years ago or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 20 years ago. Um, so the show, just when you're writing and producing the show, it catches up with the canon in the show. Yeah, so I think the you first contact is... First contact is supposed to be 2075 or something. Right, exactly. So you either I, 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 so I, you go. Do we just ignore it? Do we create an alternate timeline, which is what they did in the yes. first uh, the J.J. Abrams movie? Mm. Do you do you do you try to sort of retroactively adjust it to to fit current events? It's like it. I wish I could say it was more. Um, sort of based in, in sort of a thoughtful, yes. you know, philosophical discussion of, of how the canon should be expanded. A lot of times it's a much more kind of practical of like, yeah, shit, this doesn't work. It's like, what, <laughs> what do we do now? Yeah, what yeah. do we do now? It's yeah, like it's, it's now 2001, and this supposedly in the Star Trek universe happened in 1985. Or well, at least it's not like... Um, I don't know if you guys remember that show, that British show that that happens on the moon. Uh, is this Space right? 1990. Yes, yeah, at least it's not that. It's right in the title. It's like you sort of can't get around. I don't know. I heard that they were going to reboot it, so that's going to be interesting. <laughs> It'll all be like, you know, bell-bottom pants on the moon and stuff. Yeah, like that. No, it, was, it was... So, so yeah, I mean, I... The nuclear... Like, what you're pointing at here is, is this notion that... Um, well, just in economics, that was a cool... Concept of the old 60s Star Trek was like the whole world had to be. Yes. Before it could be rebuilt in this enlightened way. Yeah. It doesn't seem that this is. uh, I mean, Next Generation was not too much into that. well, the eugenics war or something? There was something about eugenics? Oh, there was also, yes, the, yes, right? The eugenics wars, that's right. Well, that was where Khan came from. Right? Yeah, so right? There were all kinds of crazy Khan! Yeah. But, um... <laughs> the so, the, the genetic Superman. Who yeah, they, but, like, the genetic Superman is actually something also that we're racing towards right now. I mean, um, if you keep up with where the technology is going, um, the ability to edit genes... Uh, and that these edits will be passed on has been patented two years ago. It's called CRISPR. It's a process that occurs naturally in bacteria, some bacteria, but somehow they managed to figure it out and to um, find a way to add genes or, or snip genes from embryos. So I think there was a Chinese guy who did that as a proof of concept last year. He did it on 70 human embryos. Um, half of them were not able to reproduce beyond uh, an X amount of, and the other ones that did, he killed them. But I mean, he killed them. He stopped the experiment before they could turn into con. Yes, but I mean, this is the ability to select traits and to um, insert them and to have them passed on uh, from one generation to the next is probably happening in the next twenty years. Um, that's at least what I've heard from a friend of mine. They, they had this big confab at Harvard with all these geneticists that was 
private that was not public, not open to the public or journalist or anything, which was like, where are we going and what are we going to do? And let's not leave it public so that, you know. But there, there are, uh, my brother-in-law was part of that thing. And um, he, he hinted that, yes, what can be done is um, terrifying, but also very exciting because, you know, that's, that's what technologists, they get very excited about terror terrifying things. Um, and, well, well, it's funny because it is so much is done just in service of storytelling. It's like you sit in the yeah. writer's room and we just, uh, this is my friend Andre Bormanis who uh, were, I worked with on uh, on Enterprise and who has a long association with Star Trek was a is a, 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 an astrophysicist by training and was the science advisor on the show for, for many years and worked on he Next Generation and Voyager. The, and, you uh, invented the biomimetic gel. <laughs> 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 well, the the the, uh, the the funny thing was was whenever we would have technical questions, we would go to 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 Andre and say, "Hey, could, could this happen?" And his stock response was always, "Could it happen?" It's a big universe. Sure, it could happen. <laughs> Is it likely that it's going to happen? No. But it's like could was always good enough for us. It's like yeah, it could happen. So let's do that. Yeah. Well, I just had a question for Chris. I'm wondering, you know, as a writer for that show, did you have to be a Trekkie to, to become a writer on that show, or were you a Trekkie? Or Why, I, first of all, I, bre- I believe the preferred term is Trekker. Okay. No, I mean, it's, it's not a joke. A Trekkie was the derogatory term coined by Roddenberry and his pals because he thought the fans were like groupies and they could have a good time with them. Uh, so it's actually sexist and uh, not cool at all. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it's, no, I mean, it's true. It's, it's like uh, there's a... a Professor Henry Jenkins from USC wrote a whole book about this and how fandom originally, it's called Textual Poachers, and how fandom originally was, most, most of Star Trek fandom was women and, and gay, basically. And uh, it sort of turned into something else later. But, uh, okay. I mean, well, I'm, 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 now, new, I mean, now, now, now uh, we have the bros on Twitter. But Well, to answer your question, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, a lot of the people on the staff were, you know, that they were enthusiastic about working on the show because they did have great affection for it and they did have uh, a, a history with it. You know, I had been a fan of the original series because it was sort of what I grew up with when I was a, a, a kid. I think it was actually already in syndication, probably by the time I started watching it, the, you know. Um, and, you know, unlike Manu, who's, who knows them all intimately, I really sort of fell out of Star Trek after Next Generation and didn't was not a really sort of dedicated fan of, like, you know, uh, of Voyager and Deep Space Nine, although a lot of people tell me that Deep Space Nine is the best of the, the best written of the series. But um, it, it certainly helped to have enthusiasm and affection for it, but it was writing... Um, the, the same way you would write, you would approach any project. It's like, you know, you didn't, you didn't necessarily have to love it if you knew how to tell a good story in that world. 
You know, it was like I worked on a lot of I very eclectic credits. I, you know, I worked. One of the best jobs I ever had was I worked on the show called Ugly Betty, which is about as far from Star Trek as you can get. Uh, I had an interview the show. I'd never seen the show. Uh, it had been on for two seasons. I wasn't particularly a fan of the show, um, but there was an opportunity there. I went. I took the meeting and I had a great meeting. And I went back and looked at a bunch of the episodes and thought. Wow, these are great characters. It's an interesting world. These scripts seem like they would be challenging and exciting to try and tackle. And I worked there for two years, and it wound up being one of the best jobs I ever had. But I didn't approach it as a fan. Um, but I think most of us on Star Trek were, to some degree, fans of the of the show. I mean, it was a it was a great opportunity to go there. I remember when I first showed up. And they, it was at Paramount where they had done the original, you know, it, it, it had a home Paramount forever. And they walked us over to those sets and you walked on to those. It was the people with pointed ears and ray guns, wow. phasers and running around and you, you could go onto the bridge and sit in the captain's chair. It was like, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> it was like it, you, your inner fan could not help but be excited about it. And they built those sets. I mean, they were, the expectation was that those shows were going to run for like seven seasons. So they built them. They weren't, you know, cardboard and paper mache. I mean, they were like everything that looked like steel or aluminum was steel and aluminum. I mean, you felt you walked oh, into wow. those things and closed the door and it felt like you were on a spaceship. It was really, it was pretty cool. That sounds cool. That's, yeah. So, but we're uh, <laughs> we're here mainly to talk about Manu's book and about sort of the economic universe it's, of Star Trek. Yeah, yeah but I think um, but, um, I was going to say, hey, anybody hey, else have any other? But, but if I may add something, the, the no. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Um, there's something about TV. We were talking about this before, but there's something about TV that's very special. It's it's an industrial product almost. Uh, it, it's a business. Yeah, and there's a lot of craft involved uh, and and a chain of production. But at the end of the day, you can tell the kind of stories that, and in such details and with such depth precisely because you have like five or six seasons or seven um, and it has to be consistent because you also know that if you're not consistent the fans are going to be on your behind um, and I think you know that does a lot to actually create an economically consist consistent world because it has to be well in the fans it's funny you mentioned fans they do whole, Star Trek fans are, are extraordinarily passionate about the show yeah and we they hold you to a high standard they feel they have ownership of those characters and those stories to some extent to a greater degree than the creators and the writers of it do and if you i i, I remember when we were doing uh enterprise you would come in it aired on there on sundays maybe and then you, we would come in on monday and the the phone uh, voicemail in the production office oh my God. would be maxed out with people calling in sometimes screaming at us like leaving these distraught messages do you remember Vulcans don't lie someone was like just screaming into the phone Vulcans don't lie Vulcans don't lie and we were like eh, well I mean yeah, that had been established to some degree by some of the Vulcan characters in the show but you change the world as it fits the story you want to tell you know as long as you're as long as you're faithful to the Spirit. the larger mythology and you don't do something that's I mean, that's one of the greatest thing about Enterprise, by the way, is the the way the Vulcans uh, were dealt with, and uh, because they are this stoic, almost. I mean, they in the book I say that you know the, the Vulcans they're sort of the aspirational model for humanity, this sort of right. stoic, 
not interested in anything worldly, but interested in justice. Uh, and you see that you make the enterprise made that story much more complicated, and that was kind of cool. Um, right. Well, and it, it goes to also what you and I were talking about before was: Do you think about those bigger philosophical issues when you're breaking the show? Do you look at the complete canon? Do you look at this is a so socio-economic universe whose rules have been established that we need to make sure we're extraordinarily careful about staying within. Not always. I, I mean, you it's in the back of your head if someone pitches an idea that is so counter to what this world should be, you go, yeah, no, we can't. That's, that's, I mean, they're, they're, we can't do that. But, but at the same time, it doesn't guide the storytelling. What On any given day, what you're thinking in that writer's room is what's a good, exciting, thoughtful uh, uh, story that we can tell that people are going to watch it's going to keep the show on the air and keep us all working. <laughs> you know, not, and it goes to what you're talking about about it being a business. Is it is the balance between, yeah. you know, art and commerce? Is there there there's a big studio, there's a big media company that's giving you a lot of money to do something that they expect a return on. Yes, and if they don't see a return on it, it goes away. Um, and so you are constantly balanced, you know, between being. And we took that responsibility seriously. I mean, that that it was like we weren't. Several yeah, we weren't cavalier about mm. what the the company expected from us, but at the same time, you 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 because we were fans of the show, you wanted to be faithful to, and truthful to to what it was, and not get a lot of those screaming phone messages on Monday morning and well, the least, box of garbage that got sent to the writer's office. But at least there there were not like comments on Reddit or well, yeah. Know. Fortunately, I guess in retrospect, thank God it was pre that we wouldn't get just torched on. You know, you know, on the on Twitter or whatever. It was like it's, we just got voicemails. <laughs> it sounds so quaint now. <laughs> yeah, emails are like yeah. probably. <laughs> we got we got letters. I mean, we got you know written actual written letters. You know that and the why I joke the the one thing that I remember specifically was someone sent a box just a, through the mail that came through the Paramount mailroom uh just a cardboard box like you would send books in or something and it addressed to the writers of enterprise and it was filled with garbage like someone had just taken What? like someone had taken their kitchen trash can with like coffee grounds and eggshells and stuff dumped it into a box and oh mailed it God. to us with a note that said this is what you've done to star trek <laughs> and we were like okay so the guy had like taken the time to actually do that yeah That's took it to the post office waited figured wow. out how much the postage was sent it to No, was like they, that was dead. He was, you know, so he had an opinion, and yeah. you know, he was going to express it. It's a real demonstration of how much they care. I mean, it, yeah, no, I mean, it was, it, it, it was a little, it was a little frightening at times, but it definitely showed the depth of passion and yeah. enthusiasm and ownership that people had of that show. You know? Yeah, I mean, you're sort of stepping into, I mean, I, you're stepping into something that does not necessarily belong to you when you're the writer. Uh, it's 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 hard to make it into your own story. Yeah, well, sense. you. It's, I think that's really true. I think you understand when you come in that it is a larger thing than you are, and you're being handed. You know, you're being given the car keys, and they're saying, mm -hmm. "Okay, don't dent it." You know, and and you get to drive it for a while, and then you return it, and then someone else gets to drive it. And it's uh, and Star Trek, in a way, I mean, I, I'm comparing that. Um, 
because I've, I've had some dealings with the um, the fandom of that other franchise, uh, and um, which 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 other franchise would that be? Which, yes, uh, and um, it, Star Trek fans seems to have like a very different view of the the world, and the I mean a lot of them are in technology, and they're they're you know in academia and uh, it's I was very surprised how many economists are actual very serious Star Trek fans uh, it's it's but it makes sense because this is this is the kind of uh, thought experiment that um, as an academic uh, economist you, you you I mean you find that very entertaining because here's a society where the incentives are very different and you know you can almost I was almost going to put a model in the book but then I was told nah nah no people are just not going to dig this but I was going to put like a you know I like a very uh, like a regular you know I know a guy who did it that's why I was I was saying I know a guy who's a prof uh, economics prof at you know University of Nevada and you worked out like a whole mathematical I mean person not but he basically worked out an economic model for Star Trek like so so I, you're not the first person to do this is what you're saying that's what yeah but like he he uh, as <laughs> as a as a as a um, academic he has to. Um, there are certain things that if he publishes them, he's just not going to be able to survive. <laughs> it just isn't taken seriously, you mean, because of the... Yeah, it's, it's a, well, this is something you do at the end of your career. That's the, you know, like the, the Star Trek model. Although, um, I don't know if you guys remember the when Star Wars came out, there's this guy who published this paper on Archive about um, what would be the actual cost of building the Death Star. <laughs> No, and it was like a very good paper, uh, like published. You know. I, I imagine it was fairly expensive. <laughs> yes, and it, and it didn't make much sense as a result. Uh, but that guy was not an economist. He was a he was a uh, electrical engineer. So that's okay. If you're an electrical engineer and you do that, that's okay. If you're an economist, if you do and you do that, uh, economists are very strange. They're very much like Starfleet. They really keep tabs on each other and uh, who's ever and everybody knows who's on top of who and what's the pecking order, which is kind of like well, academia. It's like, I like that in much of academia, I imagine. Yeah, it's that's the, that seems to be, and it seems that uh, yeah, the the Starfleet or Star Trek, at the way it works, is it looks a lot like academia in a sense, and with its good sides and bad sides. Um, at least we just weren't allowed to show the bad sides. Was then? <laughs> no, I mean it's very. You're not allowed to show your bad sides in academia. You always have to be very civil in academia. Right. And, exactly. And, like, you, so um, that's that's something. I I mean I did not emphasize that too much in the book, but this is definitely something that makes sense. Uh, that the people who are fans of Star Trek are 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 very educated in general and. Uh, um, well, they find a lot of themselves in it as a result. Well, yeah, I mean, I like, I think you. As I'm, not, I'm not dissing Star Wars fans, but I'm just. Well, they're I, different. I mean, I think they're they're different things. Star they, Wars is more populist. Well, they grew out of different places. Yes. You know, I mean, it was like the, Star Trek was created in the 1960s by someone who wanted a venue to tell socially relevant yeah. stories. You know, Star Wars, and I'm a fan of both, a big yeah, fan of too. both franchises. But it was it was created as a as an adventure tale based upon the 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 old serials of the 1930s. I think they were just 
they were designed to be different things. A friend of mine has this thesis, he wrote a whole book about this, that it was actually Apocalypse Now, like Star Wars as counterculture uh, of the 70s. Um, well, I think it's a test, of what you were saying a minute ago, that, that fans and academics and people in science and technology, you know, take it very seriously and they find it very inspiring. Uh, is evidenced by, I mean, how many books, we were talking about this before, that virtually every corner of the, the Star Trek universe has someone's written a book about. The technology of it, the economics of it, the social structure of it. It's like, I, I just don't think you see that in the Star Wars universe, that it's, no. it's this is, a, there's a but, much... But one of the reasons that there's much less to work with with Star Wars, you have like 15 hours of movies. I mean, I mean and, and the animated series don't count. Both first Star Star Trek and Star Wars, but uh, it's, it's wait, whoa, 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 wait a second. <laughs> I, the, the, I, 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 I love the animated series. Yeah, no, the Star Trek. I believe I the Star Trek Saturday morning animated series, the Filmation series, is is considered canon. Is it not? I, think so. I believe it is. Sufficiently popular. Yeah. I will defer to the writers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, but Star Wars, I mean, there's much less to work with. You yeah, have 15 sure. hours. It's a different. The economy of the, the, the movie itself, of the, the feature length movie, is such that you don't have time to, to build the whole universe in such details. And you don't want to. You want to punch people in the gut and they're going to come out and be very impressed. Um, I mean, well, it's, it's a difference. Well, you and I were talking about this yeah. before as well. Well, it's the difference between um, television and yeah. feature films. Yeah. I mean, feature films, you tell a story in two hours, and, you know, television is long-form storytelling. And there's, I remember when we were doing Enterprise, one of the challenges of it was there were, I think, something like 700 hours of Star Trek at that point um, between all of the series combined. And you would try to pitch a story. You would go... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, and it would be like, yeah, it was like, oh, well, that was like, you know, episode 10 of season 3 of Deep Space Nine. They did something kind of like that, and then it would be like... It was like, it, it happened constantly. Wow. Yeah, I mean, they're... they're so the official count with the animated series is 726 episodes, not counting the movies. I, I defer to... Yeah. Well, not counting the movies. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot. It's, it's a, a lot. It's a, a lot. lot. I, mean, I don't know how it translates in terms of hours, because also the original series, were, were, they were longer and slower. Like this is 40 minutes versus 50 minutes. Well, I say an hour. We'll say we, yeah. one episode. Of well, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, 720. I mean, it's, like yeah. it's, it's more than most narrative fiction. I mean, do you know any kind of book that has a you know, book series that's, that is that long? I don't. I mean, I don't think there is. Right. Um, you know, that has 700, 700 plus installments. I don't, I can't think of anything that has that. Yeah. So it was a, I mean, it was a, it was a blessing and a curse in a way. I mean, it was that you had this incredibly rich universe that had been created with all of the, that, that, you know, that web of, of, you know, the social fabric of it and the economic fabric of it and all that stuff that, that you, you, you had these, um, this uh, arena built that you would that you would work in, but then it was also really limiting in terms of you you, you constantly found yourself running headlong into you know into barriers that had been put up by previously established canon. It was what you were talking about before about mm -hmm. it's like well and you know the atomic wars happened in 1996 or whatever. It's like okay, well how do we deal with that? And it's like I was just wondering if after like thematically or something that show felt. Uh, 
did the need to kind of talk about nuclear alcohol. I remember it being brought up the way it was. No, the next time. generation did not. Um, well, the movies did. Uh, right? Did they? I mean... I did also want to say that like, I, I used to always love to look at the artworks in Star Trek, like in these utopian you know, towns they would visit, like a sneaky dog or whatever. But there's the artwork is always like it's kind of utopian artworks, kind of fascinating, like public sculpture, abstract yes. sculptures. It's the, the, the mate painting department. Yeah, Star Trek well, I think you even when you go, I think that's in the original series as well. That you look at the costume design, Bill oh Tyson's costume design that people were always wearing. Yeah, I get this book, the decadent, flowing. You know, you know that they looked like they were built for luxury. Uh, I, 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 there's this book that came out like six months ago about the costumes of Star Trek. It's an amazing book. It has like, wow, yeah. I mean, it's it's and there's a market difference between the original series and later. Um, well, they became more, you know, utilitarian. They became more utilitarian. I mean, I think, and and Andre was there when they were beginning, when they were having some of the early design conversations about Enterprise. Was it was a deliberate choice to make it look more, you know, with the the the, the overalls? They, I think. Herman Zimmerman. Space shuttle. Yeah, more like shuttle astronauts. Mm-hmm. Or in Herman, Herman Zimmerman, I think, had gone to like a nuclear submarine at one point to kind of look at how it was built. And I remember Archer. Oh, so that's why it, it looked like a submarine. Yeah, because he had the actually. The noise and the. Yeah. Yeah. To make it look like it was a prequel to yes. the original series, one of the things you had to do is make it look smaller, more cramped, less luxurious, you know, darker. Yeah. That but the screens were nicer. Well, the screens were nicer. Well, because we had actual flat yeah. screens that they could yeah. put in, and, and they could put... They had a little room on the stage that was just filled with stacks of Mac Mini computers, and each one of them fed a screen on the bridge. Oh, and wow. so they could put... But you could do it from the, the back. Yeah, and it was the Okudas in the art department could program whatever they wanted to put up on those screens wow. as opposed to like next generation they were like those gels that, that yeah. you know that they sort of and slid they, that, they would design them yeah like that were mind. sort of lit from behind you know wow yeah I mean it's the uh, uh, but the utilitarian part I think is important because it also speaks to a certain type of um, economic universe where it doesn't matter to be so very well dressed and uh, it's more egalitarian and it's also identifiable. So it's military. Uh, but Yeah, it definitely had a more military feel to it, although I don't know that that was the intent. No, no, that wasn't the intent, but I, but even Next Generation, it's the, 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 it, it is very utilitarian and military. Well, there was a lot of, we would joke about the, uh, the, the bridge of the, of the Next Generation Enterprise with its big carpeted, you know, it looked like a Carpets. kind of a, a big, a, the lobby of a hotel, the luxurious <laughs> uh, lo- lobby of a Four Seasons Hotel or something like that. And I think there was a deliberate effort in Enterprise to have it look much more utilitarian, like a submarine or a, a modern NASA spacecraft mm. or something like that. I remember Archer's ready room, the ceiling, because it, it was designed to be as if it were at the edge of the, of yeah, the saucer. So the ceiling sloped down, and Scott Bakula was quite tall, and he would walk around in there, and he actually had to duck to under, the, under the, uh, the girders that were on the roof of the wow, thing. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, okay. Which gave it a, I mean, it, 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 I think gave it a sort of immediacy and a, and a reality to it. Like, it didn't feel... There was no ten forward. Yeah, it didn't, yeah. exactly. It didn't feel as much like a sort of a, a fantastic movie set. Well, I mean, when you think of the next generation, the, the, the Enterprise is, in fact, a cruise ship 
I mean, they have m m way more civilians than than officers, and the only thing we see then it's like the occasional moment of tension or problem with some gaseous anomaly. But uh, <laughs> the, the <laughs> oh, <laughs> some anomaly of some kind. I'm not just saying, but an energy being. They're they're really like the the civilians, sort of you know. Sometimes there's a problem and you have to shuffle them around, but uh, they're really not, uh, they're, they're much more numerous and, and it seems that whatever is happening upstairs is of absolutely no interest to them. Well, it was funny because I remember there was, I, can't, I think it was in first season of Enterprise, there was a, a, a teaser, one of the episodes, I can't remember which one it was, where it didn't take place on the bridge with our principal actors. They were, it was in like the mess hall and there was a group of crewmen, three or four crewmen, and they look out the window, out the viewport or whatever, and there's like a planet out there and they're having this conversation about what do you, what do you think's going on? It's like, where, where are we? What is that? What do you think, what do you think the mission is? What are we going to do? Who's going down? Hmm. And it was, I always liked that because it was like, yeah. You you saw that there were a couple hundred other people on the ship who were not the senior officers who knew everything. Mm -hmm. Actually, I thought we should have done more like that. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I really whatever. liked. Um, you remember uh, Lower Decks? Yes, Next Gen. Yeah, it's one of those most beautiful episodes of Next Generation, and it's all from the point of view of the junior officers who are trying to climb up the ranks and uh, upstairs downstairs right? yeah it's, it, and that was you get a better sense of what life in the federation is like there and it's really about like you know well, I mean I think it other. speaks to your premise of your yeah. book which is it's like here's a group of people who are not doing the job for a paycheck they're doing no. the job to succeed at the, you know, at the... They the, want to get the, the additional little star the pips. there. Yeah, get the another pips. pip on their collar. Yeah, and be well uh, regarded by uh, Riker or by the first officer. I mean, it's... it's uh, I, I always thought... We're getting a little nerdy here, but I, I always thought that... A little. <laughs> um, lower decks, he was... The car actually... Uh, Manipulates that young ensign into a suicide mission. Uh, well, I mean, I, yeah. well, I think it goes. In, it's interesting because you still. She wants to show that she's a good officer, and he's like, "Okay, well, go on a suicide mission from which you probably won't come back." Well, it's it's funny because I think it goes to what I was asking you before about in your economic universe that the technology exists to create this post-scarcity mm. economy. The technology exists to build replicators where there is no want, there is mm. no need, you know, that anything is provided for. But my question was, is the human temperament up to that? And, and it's, it's... You remember what Krugman said? Well, what you were saying, just, what you're just pitching right there is, is an example of human beings in a 24th century technological world acting with 20th century... You know motivations and and mm. and manip manipulating other people to get what they want and you know it's like in that I'm sure when that episode was written it was it was purely done from an episode of good storytelling that you know um, but does it fit into the larger in 400 years are people going to behave that way I don't know a sense of sacrifice probably the sen I I would say the sense of sacrifice for higher cause. Right. Uh, is something, I mean, you know, whatever the motivations behind it, a lot of officers in Starfleet are okay to die if it's for the right cause. So 
This seems very weird. Like I, right. I would well, never. Well, I mean, I think it's the the the, the same uh, mindset is in the you know a lot of the sort of service you know yes. the military and and service. Uh, yeah, but the thing is, occupation. Starfleet is actually the right cause, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the Federation. That's there's this normative view of it that uh, I mean. It's you live in the perfect world. Everything's perfect, but they were in fact going about, particularly in the original series, yes. despite the uh, uh, what do you call it, the Prime Directive, yeah. sort of imposing their culture and righteousness upon other civilizations. That, that there was a lot of speechifying by Captain Kirk about oh, yes. it's like we we do it the right way, and we're going to tell you, yeah. we're going to show you how. Well, this was more. I, Maybe it's the 60s as well. We're talking about, you know, this is during the height of the Vietnam War. Um, so there, there's something to that. Uh, Roddenberry was known to be anti-Vietnam. I, I came across this um, petition. So at one of the Worldcon, so Science Fiction Congress in 69, like half of the science fiction authors signed a petition to support American involvement in Vietnam and half signed to, uh, you know, against it. Right. So Roddenberry uh, is against it there with Asimov and uh, Arthur C. Clarke and uh, Joe Haldeman and people like that. And, of course, on the other side, you have Robert Heinlein and Van Vogt. And, uh, uh, but Roddenberry was also in the... He was in the military himself. He was in the yes, Air Force. So he, knew, he, so he was, he, you know... He knew what war was about. Yeah, and, 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 and probably you would presume had a certain sense of service and service above self or country above self, whatever was motivating him at that yeah, time. Yeah, but it's World War Two. Um, that was the right fight, probably. Yeah, for for him. Yeah, for him. It's 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 messed up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I I I still. Well, I think it just goes to say the point being is you bring as a writer and a creator, you bring your life experience yeah. and your perspective to the stories you want to tell and the world you want to create. And whether and you know he created this utopian world or this you know what evolved into a utopian world in the in the in the later series based upon his own worldview of what was he was yeah. seeing in the sixties and and it, it, that's. Yeah, there, there, this is something um, I, uh, we could nerd out for several hours on this. Um, the, uh, do you remember the Whales movie? So that's the number Star four. Star Trek four, yes. Which is the an Voyage am- Home. I do know that one. Yeah. It's an amazing feat of storytelling because nothing happens. There's no villain. There's no. Uh, there are no guns. There's no space battle. There's nothing. And the story is. Not stupid, but you know, it's the travel back in time. And this is where, you know, you first hear Kirk say that, oh, we don't have money in the 23rd century. And it's more like a joke than anything else, probably. And the, the whole movie is kind of, it's very uh, breezy and fantastic. Right. Well, which is weird because that takes place within yeah. presumably the same decade yes. as the series does, where they clearly do have money. And they, yeah, they so, so there's something not entirely canon there. That, well, but it's funny. I think it does go to the more practical matter of 
just writing something, creating something, yeah. is when they wrote that, when they wrote that line, when they broke that story and wrote that script for that movie, mm. were they thinking about what mm. the socio-economic evolution of the of that? I wouldn't get was? that past Meyer though, because he was uh, somebody who who's past prior work and work when he was there. That's at least the way he presents it in his memoirs. Right. So, But you sort of backfill it. You go, okay, well, now here, <laughs> this was the story we created for the original series mm -hmm. where, because it's maybe not quite as visionary, it was a little more familiar to people. Oh, we were paid in credits because they sound so futuristic and we can buy triples with them and, and Romulan and Ale and whatever. Yeah. And then you get a decade further down in real time when they started making the movies and the, the, the world of speculative fiction becomes a little bit more sophisticated yes. and it's like well maybe we should change the rules of this world a little bit because now the idea of having credits and stuff feels a little quaint. okay i have a comeback to that the oh. tng you don't so, have to come so, back to uh, it no 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 the, the the you know the um the first two seasons of next generation had been somewhat written mm -hmm. um in 79 because they were going to do yeah they were going to do star trek 2 uh and um, Decker on the motion picture they changed the name to Riker because they didn't want to pay points to the actor um, okay so we're getting very deep into fandom here but the, the so Next Generation the Bible was like toggled and all that but it was kind of set in stone by 79 that there wouldn't be any money and they just pushed it a hundred years later but Originally, it was Kirk and, and Spock and everybody who should have been on there. And they had 20 episodes written or something like that, so it's not two seasons quite. But Yeah, but no, I mean, I think the, the point that I was trying to make is it's less of a sort of thinking about this fictional futuristic the economics of this fictional futuristic world that you're creating that now you're 10 years later in the writer's room yeah. and you're thinking, well, okay, what's a sort of more, what feels like a more sort of current version of a science fiction universe? Oh, they shouldn't have money. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I always took that line in Star Trek IV when Kirk says they're still using money uh, to mean uh, cash. You know, to be electronic, you know, like... Money that's interesting, yeah. That's interesting. Well, which is now, which is funny because I feel now I go out and I pull actual cash on my wallet. And I feel like, like I'm a, like yeah. a dinosaur. Yeah. Like I'm not. I don't wave my phone over something that yeah. that I'm like I'm an old man because it's that's like. That's how I always took it because in the original series, you know, there were also credits, credits, and you know, and Kirk at one point in the uh, the Organian Peace Treaty story, mm -hmm. Mercy. Like, do, you, do you have any idea how much Starfleet has invested in your training? It's boxes, $1,456,000. Like, they clearly had some yeah. kind of way of keeping track right. yes. of, of, you know, something, you know, the value of things. They probably do. You know, and Scotty, you just earned your pay for the week. You know, there were lines like that, which could have been like a... Yeah, and there were mining concerns or mining consortiums and right. all that stuff. Like, well, and the, 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 the Horta, you know, and yeah. you guys are going to be embarrassingly rich. And, you know, and the, the dilithium miners and the uh, Harry Mudd episode. Right, right. Yeah. They clearly were making money they're, doing Yeah, it, they're, right? grub, they're, grub, they're prospectors or whatever, yeah. Clearly getting some kind of financial award, even if 
century and Picard century, they made the decision to, uh, well, they invented the replicator, for one. There's no replicator, uh, even in the movies. Well, it's funny, I always wondered, you know, when I was a kid, like, watching that, and the little, they, they slop the, the little thing in, it's like, I was like, is there a kitchen back there? Is there, yeah. like, a little, can, is there a little elevator that brings the food, or is that machine making the food? It was like, I was like, I... It's a, what do they call those things? Not a lazy suit. There's like a dumbwaiter that comes from the galley up to the... That's like, I was like... But it would make that noise. You know, they'd slot the thing in and it would go... You know, it's it like, is it manufacturing it? I was like, I didn't know. It looks very much like TV dinners or... Um, if, you, if you get a chance, uh, you can see the GE electric house of the future and it's like with Ronald Reagan and Nancy and they're showing off all these appliances where you know you push a button and the meal comes out uh, and that that, that comes well, out of but that. there's like the the episode with Captain Christopher where he's being held or the the guard the Air Force guards being held on the ship and the guy asks him he says are you hungry yeah, he, he says what do you want he goes I don't know some chicken soup yeah. and so he sticks the thing in yeah. and the door opens and it's there yeah. immediately steaming. steaming hot so there's no way that could have been made in a galley right. they yeah. could have received the order sent so I, I look at that and I go that has to be a replicator yeah. that's the only no, way like that ramen. bowl of soup could have gotten there it's got to be ramen you know like you have the <laughs> but no it wouldn't even have been fast it was like it's 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 like it's too quick. two seconds yeah, it's there quick. yeah I guess that comp- yeah <laughs> So you start pulling threads, man, and it's uh, like yeah, the whole I know, thing. I know, you will always find uh, the the funny part, though, and I think that that's what I get from the book, and what I hope to convey is, well, the replicator for for one, the, the Federation has them, and so do the Ferengis. But the Ferengis, they make you pay for usage of the replicator. Well, I think what's really interesting about the the book you've written and the thought you've put into it and the conversation that it sparks is that when you're working on a television show and, and famously Roddenberry invented the transporter because for, from a practical production point of view they couldn't, they couldn't have the ship land and take off so it was like okay what's something we do we will we'll beam them down and the same with the communicators yeah and communicators and, and inter, uh, uh, universal translators and so many of those things weren't invented in the show as part of this larger sort of tapestry of the future. No, they were invented expedient. because they for expedience sake, yeah. And then but then they become so much a part of that universe that you it it, 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 is it, it takes a life of, a life of its own. I mean, it's like it's, it becomes a little what came first. It's like, you know, is I mean, you like, remember those Motorola flip phones, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, but yeah, the, the guy who, phones, yeah, the yeah. guy who invented the cell phone, so not, you know, the radio two way, but like the notion that you would put cell towers and there would be a mesh and all that. That guy was a fan of Star Trek and he wanted to have something that worked exactly like the captain. Yeah, exactly. My dad worked with on No way. In 1974, yeah. I You're joking. found an old letter from Marty Schimper to my dad and his team at Motorola Government Electronics Division for wow. collaborating on this project for mobile telephone. Well, and as, as you were talking before, I mean, there how many NASA engineers and JPL engineers and, and electronics, yeah. uh, electrical engineers and people were well, people inspired? People at Google wanted to do the same as the computer. I mean, like the, 
the the enterprise computer. Yeah. Next generation enterprise computer. How many now, economists were inspired to their field by Sartre? Um, Paul Krugman wrote the introduction to the new edition of Foundation. Um, so it's the one in the Great American Library or something like that. You know, it's the one volume thing. And he says basically that. And I, 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 well, that, that, that. I strongly put Asimov and Star Trek together because they're really yeah. well. And the fo- but the Foundation books, which are, I will confess I've never been able to actually get through all of them, are very rooted in economics. I mean, so much of like the, commerce and economics is what that story is. Well, the, the main character is yeah. economist. He's an economist, yeah. Krugman, yeah. so, so, um, he, wrote, he wrote that he wanted to save the world with mathematics after reading that. So, um, I mean, okay, it's not Star Trek, but I'm saying it's... it's Science fiction. Yes, and... Uh, the, that's, and that's improved. I think this, the, the the economists like they're really into marginal improvements, finding little ways to tweak. Um, uh, so this is something you know the notion that we could get to a point where distributional issues are no longer um, so fundamentally difficult to solve is is really. Uh, what they're interested in, reduction of poverty, you know, no longer poverty and everybody's uh, has health care and stuff like that. That's, that's stuff that they're working on right now. Um, well, if I could ask a question, I don't know, apologies, being late, and already addressed this, of course, don't worry about it, but read recently that there are various projections that say in the next 25 years, about half of the jobs that people in this country are doing today will either be Automated, done by yes. computers or done by robots. It's coming. Place a lot of people. And who knows how many new jobs will be created in different fields in that time? But um, do you want to? You want to hear something even more scary? Um, so this is happening. Like there's no way we can. And maybe it's not 25 years. Maybe it's 50. Um, but what what used to happen? What's what that means is we're moving towards a world where industry and industrial production, um, in terms of value, will look much more like agriculture. Yeah. Agriculture today, you know, we feed on our, but it's 3% of GDP. It used to be 25. Um, the usual way in which a country would rise from poverty was you build factories, people come from the countryside, they get jobs, they get wages, standard of living rise. Um, you've seen that in South Korea, for instance, which went from abject poverty at the end of World War II to what it is today, or China. So that is the preferred path to national wealth and increasing standard of living through industry. What happens when um, automation arrives, and it's already here, and it's no longer something that's profitable enough to employ people? So what happens to um, Nigeria will have a billion inhabitants in 2100. Tanzania will have 300 million. Uh, Malawi, you never, I mean, you might have heard of Malawi. It's a tiny country, 200 million. And suddenly um, the usual path to to national wealth will be closed off. Um, Because there won't be any point. So it's 
it's a rich world problem in terms of distribution. So, you know, we're going to have dislocations and who gets what and which job gets replaced. But we have the advantage of having all the institutions and government and the press and all that stuff. So we can actually probably deal with it. It's not going to be fun, but we can deal with it. One, one way would be to maybe, instead of the average being 40 hours of work a week, it's 20. Is that a possibility? Or would that lower everybody's standard of living? Or would, it, or would the pay scale go up since so many things are made with minimal input of labor? A lot of people are talking about uh, universal basic income yeah. as well. Um, we have to figure, I mean, reducing uh, the work week, maybe. Uh, it's been uh, um, some countries do it and have an, but you know it's basically when in France did it, so from 40 hours to 35, it's it's in fact an accounting trick. Trick. It just means that if you work longer than 35 hours, it's counted as overtime. Uh, but the overtime rate is not as big as it used to be. So it's largely shuffling around um, but that's largely compensating for sort of the, the the shrinking amount of labor as opposed to what you're pitching is is if you 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 cut the work week in half you create twice as many jobs it's like yeah. that would be I mean I'm, I'm a strong believer personally I'm a strong believer in infrastructure and there are things that you know building bridges and roads and all that well you can automate some of it um, but the people who plan it I mean, there are a lot of jobs that uh, and and work that needs to be done, and that could employ a lot of people. So, and we'll, we'll probably a good infrastructure is a, is a good idea for. Uh, well, I, it, I think it circles back to something we talked about a while ago about the Star Trek universe, which is in in a, a world where even your physician is a computer program, where so much of that labor force is automated. Yeah. And you have the characters you see on the show who are largely either Starfleet officers or scientists or people in so, to some degree at the top of their field. There are presumably billions of people in the Federation who, in in a world that has been that is evolving towards what our world is evolving towards, which is are this, they idle? Yeah, I mean, what are they doing? Are they are they, are they, are they, are they painting? Are they sculpting? Are they? They probably are. I mean, um, they probably are, uh, but they're probably also take care of their kids and. Uh, Teaching schools and uh, build stuff, yeah. and a lot of them probably have a have a shop in their garage and they're trying out new stuff. That's the. Uh, it's a a a, 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 wor a universe of uh, garage entrepreneurs. Tinkerers. Tinkerers. Yeah. yeah, tinkerers, and and a lot of amateur scientists. Well, Tom Paris liked to work on cars, right? Wasn't that his thing? <laughs> um. Sorry, we, we could go on like this for hours. Uh, uh, maybe you could. I'm uh, done. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm, what time is it? Well, thank you uh, so much. Uh, the, well, the book is. Thank you for coming. Yeah, guys. the book is wonderful. Any other questions? Anybody? Uh, you know? No? Anyone? No, it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. It's, and he's a wonderful guy. So oh, thank you. It's buy it. Read it. Oh, I'll sign God. it for you. Oh. All right. Let's. Uh, You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.